Restaurants Unstoppable, episode 932 with Chef Evan Mallet. You know, having been through a loss of a staff member recently, like I can say with 100% certainty uh, that I am super compassionate about each of their lives and want everyone to succeed. I want them to be happy. I, th- I think I would agree that I do have that sense of compassion when I'm communicating, even if the thing I have to say is hard, even if the thing I have to say is critical. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, it, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. I don't need to tell you that it's harder than ever right now to be a restaurateur. The cost of goods are going up. Labor expenses are going up. People don't want to work in the industry. Anybody who had experience has has gone on to different verticals or different industries. And we are just stuck with a lot of people who are very green. And how, how do we increase sales if nobody knows how to sell? Well, you empower them with the right tools. And one tool out there that you need to know about is called S. RV, which stands for Study Restaurant Variety, created by Roger Bodwin from Restaurant Rockstars, a name I'm sure you recognize for his multiple appearances on the show, and his co-founder and co-creator, Zaylin Jacobson, who you'll be working with. This is a tool that will help your team memorize your menu, your uh, your culture, uh, everything, anything you need to train them, your entire training manual is now in an app and accessible anywhere. And really what it is, is an interactive learning tool. And it's a great way to invest in your team and to make them feel valued. There's a lot of data supporting that. This is how the next generation of professionals prefer to learn. So if you need a tool out there to empower your staff, to train your staff, uh, to, to give them the knowledge they need to be sales stars, then check out srvnow.com click the link that says request a demo and that will bring you to a page where you fill out your information the very last field make sure you let them know that restaurant unstoppable sent you their way they will pay us a commission of one thousand five hundred dollars if you use that link and you you sign up with them and i just have to say thank you in advance we're trying to take restaurant unstoppable to the next level and this is one way we can do that by just spreading the word about these tools and uh, I believe in what they're doing over there. So you're in good hands. Uh, thank you in advance. All right. Do it now. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, chef owner of Black Trumpet, Chef Evan Mallet. My man, are you feeling unstoppable today? I sure am. Dude, I'm feeling unstoppable <laughs> today. It was eight years ago. 
almost eight years ago, we sat right up here. You were my first ever interview. I was so nervous <laughs> and it, I couldn't have thought of a better person to, to pop this thing off with than Evan Mallet. Well, it was, it was a pretty great time um, for me as well. Uh, having been seven years in the business uh, at Black Trumpet and you came along at a time where I, you know, was ready to start telling a story and it was shortly after that that I wrote my book. So yeah, I, I think I see him sitting right here. You helped plant that seed. Well, awesome. And I'm, I'm absolutely getting one of those books signed by you before I leave today. I'd love to make that happen. Uh, and I'm so excited for today's conversation. Like I said, this, you were my first ever interview, episode 002. Episode one was just kind of me telling the world about Restaurant Unstoppable and what I wanted to do. But you were my first ever episode. So if you guys want to get caught up, I highly recommend hitting pause right now. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 002 and get caught up because we're going to pick up where we left off. We might echo a few things that were mentioned in the first interview, but today I really just want to go deeper and you brought a lot to the surface. Then I've almost interviewed a thousand people since then. And I feel like my, just my perspective has gotten like 10 X and I would Mm -hmm. love to pull some layers back on what you shared that first time around. And we're going to pick up, um, I think when we last spoke, you were opening a second restaurant in Newmarket, New Hampshire. Wow. That was, yeah, that yeah. was eight years ago. So we're, we'll talk about that, sure. uh, what you learned, what happened, and I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. But before we dive into who you are and how you got to where you are today, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you offer us? Well, um, we've just been through a couple of years of very, very trying times in our industry, and I've seen a lot of burnout. Um, and I guess my new mantra, if I have one, is it's healthy to aspire, um, but don't let yourself expire. Mm. Dive into that. Um, well, you know, <laughs> you said I'm candid, and um, I will very candidly say that uh, this summer um, on my staff, and, and I don't want to open up with a downer here, but uh, we actually lost one of our employees mm. to suicide. I'm so sorry. And... Uh, this is not the first time this has happened in our industry. It's not going to be the last, um, but it was the closest to home for me. And it really let me, uh, it led me down a road of introspection, also industry examination and uh, doing some you know, like real scrutiny on what makes us tick mm-hmm. as an industry and as employees within that industry. And as an employer, I felt uh, and still feel a sense of obligation to uh, address the issues of mental health in the workplace. I don't have an answer as to you know how to remedy or reverse some of the um, you know the mentality that can lead to suicidal ideation or. Uh, just to depression, anxiety, stress, like all the things that historically have motivated people in our industry. And I'm not just thinking of the kitchen. I'm thinking in front of the house as well. Uh, There's an excitement and an adrenaline that go along with food service. And I think we got to a point in our industry where that sort of parabolic curve um, got to like a saturation point and the pandemic really was the, you know, 
catalyst, I think, that sort of tipped it over the edge. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm loving that you're starting with this, uh, bringing this to the surface. And I think we'll, we'll probably come back to it, I feel like, at the very end of our conversation because, uh, you know, what you're sharing right now, um, I th- there's just – the more I learn about what it takes – I mean – Actually, I'll reference you. The, the very first interview I did, you said we measure success by money in this industry or your, your capital gain, uh, but there's so much more to it. And uh, it's about, I mean, there's just literally so much. Like you, Whether you're supporting a, a broken food system or not or whether you're, you're focusing on relationships and you're focusing on the change that you're making in your community, these are the things that you pointed out. And I think that the more we learn about humans, the more we learn about how we got to where we are today, the, the driving force to economies, I hope, into the future is really just going to be on how can we create the happiest place? Hmm. And the more we learn about us and what drives us, and what we, we all we really want is to be happy at the end of the day. And we're learning so much about the human mind and how we tick. And I think there's a lot of hope because I, I think that things can shift. I'm, I'm hopeful. Are you? I am hopeful. I I'm I'm terminally hopeful <laughs> and, and yeah. uh, it helps um, get through some of the hard stuff that yeah. this this industry doles out. And, you know, when you you say humans, you know, I think we have to remember in this industry, to my previous point, that uh, when we are so focused on making other people happy, uh, we can sometimes lose sight of making ourselves happy and making sure that our definition of self-care and happiness um, isn't distorted by the lifestyle that our industry promotes. Yeah. And the specific question I asked you is what is the definition of success in the first interview? And the mm. show has changed a lot. That's <laughs> one of the reasons why I got you back on the show. Cause I feel like I still haven't interviewed yet because <laughs> the show has evolved that much. But when I asked you that question, what is the definition of success? You said it's not capitalistic. It's reputation. It's, it's communion, it's relationships and it's how you acquire your food. And that was the first interview I ever did. And I feel like you sent me on a path. <laughs> uh, you gave me, this this filter of like who if that's the definition of success if that was my first impression of what success should be in the restaurant industry how do i use that as a filter to 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 dictate who i get on the show going forward Hmm. and that's been very important to me going forward like what are your values uh the mission statement of restaurant unstoppable is to inspire empower and transform the industry and the words you used was restore we need to restore the the industry and you're very specific about that that word because you want to get into why that's a special word to you uh, well, I think the context in that conversation was uh, that I had just been doing some research into the history of the restaurant, and um, the word restaurant literally means uh, restorative, yes. um, which evolved out of a, a French word for soup, um, and the signs on auberge between Paris and Lyon that um, had the word restaurant on them indicated a place to stop and have a soul-warming bowl of soup uh, and sometimes crash for the night uh, before we had, you know, highways yeah. and automobiles. So um, so it really struck, like, a chord within me that this notion of refueling and um, giving ourselves, like, nourishment is the heart of what a restaurant 
is and, and I think should be. Yes. And we should never lose sight yes. of that And component. I think we have. And I think for a while we got really far away of what it means to be a restaurant or to be a public house or a bar. I'm interviewing the, uh, the author of Drunk next week. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of that book, Drunk, mm-hmm. uh, Edward Slinger- yeah. Slingerland. And um, he points out in that book just what the meaning of what what it meant to be a pub owner or a restaurant owner 200 years ago like you ran that town you were the mayor everything happened you were like the central point of that community and i think we've gotten so far away from what it means to to be a restaurant tour or a pub where it's so transactional now um and I, I and i hope that we go we revert back to that and that's kind of what i'm here to do is to to let people know that there's a responsibility that you have when you're feeding people but one of the things you mentioned in that conversation was that um, there was an issue with the the food system and also technology. Um, and we need to get away from that. But specifically, I know we're going back eight years now. Yeah. Why did you bring technology into that conversation? Well, I think, <clears throat> if I remember correctly, eight years ago uh, roughly coincided with the evolution of um, sort of like science-based cuisine and uh, we called it molecular gastronomy. It was, uh, you know, one name for it. But I saw uh, a trend where more and more uh, s- celebrated chefs um, were doing food preparations and presentations that were so um, aided by scientific processes and technology that we were losing sight of the soul of food. And I think it's really cool to be able to create a different texture um, or be able to turn something round into something square uh, using, you know, certain uh, chemicals, molecular um, additives. But, you know, my approach to cooking is much more holistic than that and uh, has always been sort of averse to any additives that don't belong in food, in my opinion. Yeah, keep it as close to the original source as possible. Yeah, so, I mean, if we were talking about cooking, then that's the technology I think I was referring to. But, you know, by the same token, Vitamix came along and completely revolutionized how how we puree things, you know? So I'm not anti-technology by any means. I am a Luddite in, like, lots of ways, but... What's the definition of a Luddite? A Luddite, uh, to me, means someone who is averse to technology or ignorant to um, the progress, quote-unquote progress, that technology provides. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I've been struggling with um, as the host of the show. Um, Like, who do I make an example of? Like, what when I say inspire, empower, and transform, what does it mean to transform? What is the transformation that's ideal for everybody, you know? Uh, What goes through your mind as I say that? uh, Well... By saying that, you're presuming that, uh, you know, there's something that needs to be changed. And I think uh, there's a lot of that out there. There's a, uh, that movement away from the restorative component of dining. Um, and it's sort of the philosophical principles behind what it means to be a restaurant in our shared, yeah. you know, value set that, that, uh, that's rare. And so, you know, if your mission is to um, remind me of the word you just used to, to transform, transform. Yeah. So, yeah, the transformation, I guess, uh, really 
needs to happen on a lot of levels, in my opinion, uh, to achieve a more harmonious, uh, but also beneficial world of dining. Yes. So that we, we have a lot to, restaurants have a lot to offer and in the right setting, I think can be that public house, that community nexus that, um, not just nourishes, but also informs and educates. Yes. And, and that's the key thing that I think we've gotten away from is we've lost, it's become just about the transaction, right? And we forgot that we have a social responsibility, you know? Uh, and I think that that's important is that we, we as restaurant tours are leaders and influencers educating the public about how their decisions affect the future. And that's something you've been so good at, man. Well, I mean, the community piece and the, you know, the ecological uh, effects of food service, like those have been baked into me all along. Um, but I will, I will just say that, you know, it's not for everybody. And I, Being I think a restaurant tour. Well, that's true too. <laughs> that's definitely true. Yes. But the, the additional aspect of being community driven or, uh, pushing for social justice, like those are all things that we do in this restaurant. Um, I can say we, because it's not just me, it's a staff of people who are very cognizant of what's broken and want to be a part of the change that will ultimately, we hope, fix yeah, what's yeah. broken. So I'm, I'm going to continue with my train of thought and this idea that you sent me down this path. You really did influence me. You sent me down this path of injecting integrity and values into what I do. Um, I've also learned over almost a thousand episodes now that this path of righteousness and trying to do the right thing and trying to source as locally as possible and as and to try to 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 create something with integrity is becoming increasingly more difficult to do with specifically the shortage in labor. Mm. To do what you do is not easy. It takes a team. It takes an army. And it takes training. And it takes building and forming people over time. And I worry sometimes that while your goal is to be sustainable, you're not fiscally sustainable. Hmm. You know? And like, and I worry sometimes to encourage people to take the path that you took because I know it's not going to be easy. No. And I almost feel like I'm setting people up for disaster and failure because of the world we live in now. So like my social responsibility is how do you find that path of doing the right thing, but also leveraging technology, which we said was kind of a negative thing earlier, mm. but as a positive thing, like what's that balance look like? What for you, what does that balance look like? Well, it's, it's a big question. Um, and I think that my, you know, my advice that I give to people who are starting out or um, interested in pursuing restaurant ownership or even just working, you know, in a kitchen, but having some um, say in purchasing for a restaurant, you know, my advice is to do what little bit you can and don't, you know, like I said, you want to aspire, yeah. but not expire. So... Uh, fiscally, it is a balancing act. It's incredibly challenging to try to do everything right. It's virtually impossible. Um, so we've had to, at Black Trumpet, you know, take it sort of one piece at a time. And you get to a point after a while where uh, you've built a reputation. People know that they can rely on you for providing 
locally sourced food to the best of your ability. Um, you know, transparency is really, really important. Um, and that builds trust and it builds confidence that guests who come into Black Trumpet know that they're going to get a certain, I, I would hope anyway, that they're going to get a certain quality of meal. But more importantly, their conscience is going to feel really good about spending their money in an establishment that is sourcing local food, responsible food, uh, participating in you know community action and trying to build a better food system. But what you just described from what I've learned studying human behavior and human evolution and what makes us tick is the solution to avoid the tragedy that happened this summer. You know, the more we lean into relationships, the more we lean into giving people purpose and finding that balance, the better we'll all be. And um, I just don't, how do we, how does the restaurant industry influence us to get closer to that place? Uh, if you ever find that answer, I hope you'll share it with me. But I, mean, I think it just it comes down to just to echoing the lessons we've learned about what it takes to be happy, you know. Um, and I don't think the the answer is in evolving away from what we have been, but it's an understanding why we evolved to where we are mm. and how to recreate where we were ten thousand years ago mm. in in the modern world. How do we take the parts that make us tick and inject them into a a twenty first century world you know that's my thought i think that the notion of happiness um has been very sullied by the restaurant industry um because there's this short-term you know happiness that we can achieve by uh staying up late after work going out drinking um doing whatever other inputs give us the illusion of happiness and uh making friends you know having sex with strangers sometimes yeah i don't do that um just want to be clear about that (laughs) um i actually really don't do any of those things anymore but i uh do know that that's like an exciting piece of our business that can be mistaken for happiness yeah and that that balance that you were just referencing and that i was talking about earlier is very important for the long-term sustainability of people in our industry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's well known that the United States restaurant industry is populated by transients, by people who are pursuing another career, uh, trying to work their way through college, uh, then whatever comes after college. It's people who haven't figured it out yet, Mm -hmm. um, don't really know what they want to do full-time, but it's a very rare person that we come across in this industry who's in it for the long haul. Yeah. And we're lucky at Black Trumpet that, you know, I have a bar manager who's been with me all 15 years that we've been open, a general manager who's been here for 12 of those, um, people on my kitchen staff who have been with me since they were 16 and are now in their mid-20s. Like, I'm very, very fortunate. But I will say that, like, my big wake-up call uh, this summer was – the within three weeks, I lost three kitchen staff. Uh, one was with me for six years, one was with me for seven years, and one was with me for two, two and a half, three years. And uh, that was cataclysmic. It was came during our busiest season. And I think I had gotten to a point where I felt like I've built a team, you know, and then the rug was pulled out from under me. And I'm like, shit, I have to like, go back 
to scratch and start again. Yeah. And building a building a kitchen team is what I've been doing in the during months, the hardest since. time ever to do it. Yeah, but yeah. you know, losing those people happened because it was the hardest time yeah. ever. Yeah. And the stress that we all feel. That one of the people I lost was this amazing cook named Melissa who um just she at the beginning of the pandemic she created this awesome uh phrase body lasagna to describe the layers of anxiety that had built up inside her gut and just um she was able to navigate through you know all the things that we had to do to pivot during the pandemic i'm laughing because i just visualize picturing the body lasagna lasagna. (laughs) yeah yeah and uh, we actually had a uh, well, that's another story we can get to later if you want yeah. to talk about pandemic stuff. But anyway, she, I try to avoid it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, but, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that, um, you know, losing Melissa was she was a heartbeat in mm-hmm. our kitchen and not just a not just a worker. Yeah. So that's uh, tough. I want to take this opportunity to to kind of talk about why I'm getting Edward Slinger. I always struggle with this name. Slingerland on the show, uh, the author of Drunk. Um, and it's because that book takes a very anthropological approach to how alcohol came into our lives mm. and the benefits of alcohol and how it was extremely beneficial to early humans. And the, our relationship with alcohol today, since like two, 300 years ago, has completely morphed. Um, there's so much alcohol in the world today that it's so unprecedented Mm. it took communities in like cultures to make alcohol and what they produce was enough to be used in a very ceremonial way sure you know um and i think it's really because you brought the 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 topic of alcohol and drugs up and how Mm. we use these things as a shortcut to create false happiness Mm -hmm. and that's why i think it's so important to get edward slingerland on the show is because i think once you understand the relationship that was meant to be with alcohol, it makes you see it through a completely different lens and you respect it much more. I mean, just from reading that book, I've cut way back on my drinking. I have a rule. <laughs> I won't drink alone. It was never meant to be drank alone, mm. you know? And um, it's, it's really important. And I think I just want to echo that because I think that this conversation is going to be very beneficial to our industry. Uh, but I would like to move the conversation on. But before we do, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back to talk about some of the things you dropped, some of the other things you dropped on us last time we connected. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. 
often the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. Restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. We are back and I know we usually save the the high level thirty thousand foot big picture conversation for the end, but I I wanted to make sure we got that out today, and I feel like we kind of we did, and it was important for me to bring that to the conversation today because I mean it's everything we just covered. But I am interested in, in getting into some of the granular things uh, that you mentioned in our first conversation. Uh, like when I asked you what your your biggest challenge was then, hmm. uh, you said bounce, and you're bringing that back to the conversation. This idea. Again, the, the importance of this idea of balance. Then I asked you, how do you overcome balance? How do you deal with balance? And you said communication um, is how you, your source to overcome it. So I'm curious, can we go deeper into how you communicate? What you've learned about how to communicate to strike that balance? Mm. What's go- do I need to refresh your memory a little more? No, no. Okay. I, I think that is sufficient. Um, and I, I don't know that like I will ever completely figure out the best um, means of communication or the most effective way to communicate. Um, but I, I will, I will agree with myself <laughs> that, uh, you know, eight years later it communication is probably still the most important uh, part of leadership. Yeah. And I think transparency, humility also really important. Um, Why? I think that in our industry, there can be hubris and arrogance that ego. Well, it's driven by ego for sure. And you see that a lot in chefs. Um, I don't have any patience for that. And as soon as I see someone, you know, thumping their chest, it makes me lose respect uh, rather than, you know, want to spend more time around them or learn from them. Um, I've been, you know, in the position of leadership now for a long time. So I, it's, I have to sort of dig deep in my memory to think about those chefs who I've worked for in the past. Um, and, you know, it's important to be confident and know what you're doing and be able to teach. But it's also, um, I think, very counterproductive to, uh, you know, have tantrums or uh, believe that you're better than anyone else. Um, we're... <laughs> If we're truly like about restoration, about being you know restorative, then the health and happiness of the people we're feeding is so much more important than all of the. Uh, I, I'm kind of losing myself in this train of thought here, but um, I guess I'm just thinking like all of the awards, all of the. Um, credit and attention that chefs get i think clouds our sense of what is what our values are yeah. and what's most important and so. we achieve those things and it's such a fleeting moment and nothing changes after you get the award maybe you might be busier for a year or two um then, i don't even know if forgotten. it lasts that long yeah but, exactly yeah um which is why it's it's not about the destination you know and i think that's one of the big things there's these awards take such 
they carry so much weight in our industry. Everybody doesn't feel like they're successful unless they get an award, regardless of what that award is. I think that's one of the issues with our industry is we're all chasing awards for, for validation. And it's like, what the fuck are we doing? I had a conversation with another chef a few years ago um, who was sort of coming up in the community and was very active doing a lot of the events that, you know, we all do. Um, and I think looked at the number of uh, James Beard nominations that I had had and came to me like asking more or less like what he has to do to get one of those, you know, and I'm like, yeah. I never set out to get one. I never really thought about it. It was my wife who was like, you know, you should really get one of those awards. And I was like, <laughs> well, okay, but I'm not going to like write a letter and ask for one. I think that's what you have to do nowadays for some uh, of those something awards. Like you that. have to submit yourself. Right. Yeah. So, and yeah, anyway, so I'm fortunate that I got that recognition without going after it. Um, but right. I think my advice to him was, you know, just, you're really talented to yeah. do what you're passionate about yes and the awards will happen you know yes. if you're if you're passionate about it and you get the right crew to support what you do yeah you know? which brings us full circle because it's a, like we started down this path when i asked you why is humility important and it's because if you if you if you get into this industry to win awards you almost guaranteed not to get one <laughs> but if you do it for the right reasons that's and I, and I crap on James Beard a lot because I feel like it, it does influence the culture of our industry. But at the same time, I do have to give them recognition for giving the right people the awards. I, I think I can say that now. Yeah. Um, I think the changes they've made in the last uh, two, two to three years have been very driven um, by a restructuring yeah. and a reprioritization of the, their values. You know, mm-hmm. And now I think... The foundation is very conscious of the need for more people of color in uh, in the limelight, you know, in, in the spotlight of our industry. Um, social change is, is baked into their mission now, which is a huge step in the right direction um, because there were for so many years, so many white men who would be getting those awards all around the country. Yeah. And there were a lot of women who were cooking that weren't getting uh, due credit. There were a lot of people of color out there who, you know, whether or not they were at these like white tablecloth, fine dining restaurants, um, they were being overlooked. And now James Beard has really, I think, made a great effort to identify all of the chefs who are out there. Yes. Um, So back on this vein of communication, we've identified why it's important to communicate and to remain humble and to put your ego aside. But how do you communicate? Is there structure to your communication? Hmm. Are there weekly events and uh, meetings Mm. that happen to make sure? The anatomy of communication. I mean, there's probably like a whole book that can be written there. I'm sure Um, there is. so there's day-to-day communication that happens um, in person. I'm here every day. So um, I, uh, one of my uh, character flaws is that I get really ex- – I'm a very excitable boy. I get really um, impassioned by – you know, an ingredient that's fresh or, or, you know, as I, I look over some, here, some apples in front I, I brought too. some I Sopus Spitzenberg in apples <laughs> from an heirloom orchard nearby. Yeah. And then I have this uh, green tomato ketchup, which is one of five things that I've canned or preserved um, from green tomatoes, which are like so bountiful at this time of year. And it's essentially free food. It's yeah. like 
the end of the season for tomato farmers who are going to lose these, you know, beautiful fruits on the vine because they never fully ripened, yeah. but they're still food. Yeah. And anyway, stuff like that gets, and, and I know I'm off topic a little bit, but I'll bring it back around. Um, when I, uh, get excited about that or about a new shrimp farm, uh, you know, in our, in our neck of the woods or, um, some like, uh, we have a woman coming on Monday named Severin Von Charner Fleming, who is, uh, has an organization called seaweed commons. And she's really setting out to rebuild trade routes, uh, up and down the East coast by sale and distributing, uh, food that she grows on her organic farm in mid coast, Maine. Uh, and bringing it as far south as the Virgin Islands, so wow. and plying you know ports along the route. So again, really uh, tangential to our topic. But what brings it back around is um, this notion that uh, by virtue of my uh, excitement and talking about it every day at staff meal at four forty-five when we're all gathered around and we've made dinner, we have 15 minutes, you know, and I spend, I fill that 15 minutes and you can ask my staff. It's like full <laughs> of whatever, um, but it's also good. We to bring like to the party that deadline day. to it too, because it forces you to get everything communicated, not get lost in attention. Right. Yeah. yeah. And as you can tell, like <laughs> I am prone, I am prone to those tangents, but, um, so that's one level of communication that happens every day. Um, I'm very, we have, we have kitchen meetings once a month. Uh, we have manager meetings once a month. We try to, um, sort of look into the future because we can now accurately do that, you know, barring any, you know, major worldwide pandemics. Um, we've had enough cycles of business that we know what's coming up in terms of crops that will be, uh, harvested, um, what, you know, uh, trends there are in the industry at certain seasons of the year because we're so like hyper aware of seasons here yeah. and that communication is like anticipatory it's yes. like we, we start getting excited about what's coming up yeah. and after we've survived a winter you know and that the first green shoots that come out of the ground like we go to like hardcore communication yes. um, plotting our bar menu um, our, our food menus that change um, eight times a year and all of those, you know, menus represent these sort of micro seasons in which there are, we can capture that perfect availability of a local yes. uh, ingredient. The word I was hoping that would come out of your mouth just to get to it and something I've identified about you, I know I'm not the only person that thinks this, is that you have a really high level of candor. <laughs> you have mentioned that. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I believe in candor. I think there's, uh, as I, I think I mentioned to you earlier, I... I'm way too old for bullshit and I have like a very low, um, bar for, well, I I think I have a low tolerance for other people who I think are bullshitting me. So I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. And, um, I think that that's one thing I've identified about you that I think is just really important is that like a sharp scalpel, man, you get straight to it. Like you cut straight through the bullshit (laughs) and you get to the source. Um, and I think that, that's just a really powerful, like and people are afraid to be candid. They're afraid to, to, to say what everyone's thinking, but it might hurt someone's feelings. If they, if you bring something to the surface that they might be self-conscious about or whatever, but why is it important to just to, to get to the point and just to, to communicate what's happening there? 
I, I mean, we have a very fast paced uh, business and, yeah. and maybe it evolved. Like maybe my candor is uh, giving me too much credit and maybe it's really just about trying to get a point across <laughs> in, yeah. in an emergency situation, <laughs> yeah. which is what, you know, most situations uh, are on, on the brink of. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, just to, to compound um, on this idea of candor, um, when you're communicating, things can get lost in, in, in the translation. You have to, and it's hard to give people constructive criticism sometimes because you do care about them, but they have to know and they can't get better unless they do know. So you have to be willing just to get to it. But I think when you do it, like the book Radical Candor talks about this, it's, it's when you do it from a place of compassion where you're not coming down and I'm not mad at you. I'm just communicating the reality. And if, if that means we have to get you off this path and put you on a new path, that's the best thing for you. But when it comes from a place of, of compassion and caring, like you care about this person, people can pick up on that, Mm. you know? So as long as you have the right intention, um, with the communication. And I think that is something that I've just noticed about you. The one-on-one communicating, um, with people i'm thinking particularly as you were saying that i was thinking about you know do i do that um when i when i communicate with my staff and you know having been through a loss of a staff member recently like i can say with a hundred percent certainty uh that i am super compassionate about each of their lives and want everyone to succeed i want them to be happy and you know so Maybe uh, I, th- I think I would agree that I do have that sense of compassion when I'm communicating, even if the thing I have to say is hard, even if the thing I have to say is critical. Um, and it certainly is true in the kitchen at a fast pace, one-on-one. I think it's if you were to ask my kitchen employees, um, you know, if my motives were... Uh, you know, anything other than compassionate, they would, they would say no, because ultimately if someone's not happy and someone's, you know, not either doing a good job or caring about their job, if I, I like, I want them to be here and yeah. I want them to be content mm-hmm. and doing and working hard, yeah. you know, um, the biggest challenge for everybody right now, if I were to ask a question, what's your challenge is staffing. Um, that was one thing that you were really proud of when we first spoke mm. was your ability to retain <laughs> people. Like you had very mm. low retrition rates. I jinxed myself. Yeah. Well, dude, I don't, <sighs> if you own a restaurant in this industry today, there isn't a person I know. I'm thinking of Laney and Lou right now in Exeter mm. when I worked there for a little bit, oh, like yeah. four or five years ago. That's right. Um, and they were just, like, it, it seemed like anybody who was health focused on the seacoast, um, who was looking for a job in the restaurant industry went to go apply for Laney and Lou. And there was mm-hmm. a stack of resumes. I remember just being like, holy crap, how do you have so many resumes? Well, she's, even, a, she's a really inspiring leader too. Oh yeah. You know? Jen Drozier's. Yeah. yeah. Um, but even they're struggling right now. Mm. And I went in there yesterday to grab a salad and like, they're like, we're need people. And I was mm. like, if you need people, imagine how bad everybody else needs people. Right. right. Now. Uh, so I wouldn't, if you're in that that ballpark of, of needing people, you're not alone. I mean, no, I know. I know. Yeah. It's uh, and it's not just the restaurant industry, but that's what we're here to talk about today. It's, um, it's really pervasive in society. And, and, uh, I've listened to a lot of podcasts now. I've listened to a lot of, um, 
advice uh, that's being doled out or observations at, at the least. I've read articles. And I think we don't know the answer. I think, you know, from a anthropological or sociological perspective, something is happening. And we've, I've heard a lot of suggestions as to what it is, but I don't think anyone has an answer to it. I mean, I think it could be so many different things. I think it's obviously one is that there's more restaurants per capita than ever before. I don't think the hiring pools changed as much as there's more people drawing from the pool. Uh, and not just the restaurant industry, um, the gig economy, uh, the cre- like, there's so much opportunity for creatives today. I'm a perfect example. Mm. If I didn't have this restaurant business podcast, I'd be working in the restaurant business. Right. And there's other people in worked in the restaurant, put in, he's with us today off camera, um, videographer, photography, restaurant industry, you know, the, this, this insurgence of media and need for media and need for creativity, I think is pulling a lot of that and the gig economy is there's, there's just so many, so much, it doesn't feel like it for the restaurant industry, but there's so much abundance out there right now for opportunity that I think that it, it makes us and the, the people we would hire, like those people are just going in so many different directions right now. I think, that's I think they're different. gravitating toward directions that offer more self-care, more um, autonomy is another big part of it. Yeah. And I think that's a, sorry, we're going to say something. No, else? no, I was actually about to go to auto- autonomy because yeah. that's a, that's a huge Factor, And I think that's a big thing. You're seeing people who were okay with the recognition of being the sous chef or the chef de cuisine. That was enough for them. I think today people want their name on the door. They want to own the business. Mm -hmm. What are your, do you're shaking your head? Do you agree with that or disagree with that? Um, I think a lot of people want to sell, grow, buy, and consume weed. So I, my private theory all along. Talking about marijuana. Yeah. Okay. And I, I my private uh, belief all along during the attrition, the great exodus from our industry, is that like some percentage of those people that's sure. maybe a little bit larger than anyone wants to admit, yeah, is now in the marijuana industry. And as um, you know, Maine became legal. Uh, we now unmasked too. So we're, on either we're side. Surrounded. Yeah, we're for, surrounded. Pe- and for people who aren't familiar with New Hampshire. States are a lot smaller out here. <laughs> uh, I can go in ten minutes in any direction and be in, in a like, different state, a, a different state. And the, yeah. the furthest I have to drive to be in Vermont is an hour, right? You know, you go to Texas and like I've driven across that state. It takes you can't go a over, across a county in an hour. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So, um, so that growth of the the growth of that industry is clearly um, drawn some people from sure. the restaurant industry. It's a perfect example. Yeah, and I, you know, there. Are, it, I used to say that most good creative chefs who burn out become carpenters um, or work in the construction industry. And now I'm changing that model to the cannabis industry because I've seen so many really talented cooks yeah. end up there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's a perfect example of what's happening in the world today, where there's just an abundance of opportunities. It's just we're we're the same that opportunity is going towards our, our demic our, our target market for employees. So like we're just, there's more competition than ever for the, the people, which sucks for us. But I think it's in the bigger scheme of things is probably a good thing. Mm. Um, I mean, I think what we could, we could unpackage this so much. I'm looking at the time. We have about 20 minutes left together. Can I say one thing Go real ahead. quick there? When on the topic of communication, I feel like I could have gone on. I, like I said, it could yeah, be yeah, a book please. in and of itself, but there's this one thing that used to be a really great, 
draw for me in my uh, restaurant in terms of like uh, building a future staff. And that was this annual or it used to be biennial now annual lecture that I do at the eco gastronomy program at UNH. And these were the like open minds of a new generation every year coming up uh, who were ready to drink the Kool-Aid. And all I had to do was like serve them a bowl. And it was, you know, it's in a lecture hall and it's sometimes, you know, like 50 or more students who are taking that program because they care about something more than just food service. Um, So I was able to like recruit young people from just doing that lecture who were the kind of people we want at Black Trumpet because they are living and breathing uh, that passion for making the world a better place, you know, and um, they shared your culture. They, they, they came at it like they were already being sort of ingrained in that culture. And then so like harvesting them and bringing them on board um, has led to some amazing relationships over the years. People who have, have worked here, then gone away, worked on farms, um, you know, traveled the world and then come back and worked in a different capacity. So we have that boomerang yeah. effect here where a lot of people will go away, do something else and then come back to black trumpet. Distill the direct tie to communication. Is it just getting out there and well, being that, that, I was, and saying and communicating what you are and, and what you, that's what in? I meant. Yeah, yeah. It's like just by virtue of doing those public speaking things that represent yes. what black trumpet is about. And I did yes. a lot of those yes. in the last two and a half years. Um, it's that storytelling. That's a big part of what black trumpet stands for, but um, it is a form of communication too, yes. right? And it, it helps build our reputation. This is why we have mission statements, why we have core values, why we have vision statements. Mm-hmm. It's not to be written down and folded up in a book and put away on the shelf. It's to be shared it's every day. It's to be <laughs> echoed every yeah. day. Every, and this is why you share it. This is why you get on board. So you can find your people. Simon Sinek, start with why. People don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. Mm-hmm. And you've got to echo that. You've got to let the world know. And, and you, you, I mean, Danny Meyer, the number one, you're, you know, your you're chief guest, your most important guest is your employee. It starts mm-hmm. with your employee. That's the number one focus. And everything kind of tumbles behind that. Yeah. I, is, was that from setting the table? Yes. Okay. The book you recommended. When yeah. We first yes. <laughs> well, that was a Bible for, you know, my wife and I, when we first uh, started at Black, Black Trumpet 15 plus years ago. And uh, I still reference it from time to time. Yeah. You know, there's, I, I it's a lot of wisdom in there. For sure. Um, one more quick break to thank our sponsors. And I, I want to talk about uh, the the last seven years a little bit, um, what we learned from about business and um, some of the other ventures you took part in. I don't need to tell you that it's harder than ever right now to be a restaurateur. The cost of goods are going up. Labor expenses are going up. People don't want to work in the industry. Anybody who had experiences has gone on to different verticals or different industries. And we are just stuck with a lot of people who are very green in how, how do we increase sales if nobody knows how to sell? Well, you empower them with the right tools. And one tool out there that you need to know about is called S. RV, which stands for Study Restaurant Variety, created by Roger Bodwin from Restaurant Rockstars, a name I'm sure you recognize for his multiple appearances on the show, and his co-founder and co-creator, Zaylin Jacobson, who you'll be working with. This is a tool that will help your team memorize your menu, your uh, your culture, uh, everything, anything you need to train them, your entire training manual is now in an app and accessible anywhere. And 
Really, what it is, is an interactive learning tool, and it's a great way to invest in your team and to make them feel valued. There's a lot of data supporting that this is how the next generation of professionals prefer to learn. So if you need a tool out there to empower your staff, to train your staff, uh, to, to give them the knowledge they need to be sales stars, then check out srvnow.com. Click the link that says request a demo and that will bring you to a page where you fill out your information. The very last field, make sure you let them know that Restaurant Unstoppable sent you their way. They will pay us a commission of $1,500 if you use that link and you you sign up with them. And I just have to say thank you in advance. We're trying to take Restaurant Unstoppable to the next level. And this is one way we can do that by just spreading the word about these tools. And uh, I believe in what they're doing over there. So you're in good hands. Uh, thank you in advance. All right. Do it now. We are back, and when we last spoke back in 2014, and if you guys did take my advice and go back to episode 002, I apologize for the audio quality. <laughs> um, we've come a long way. I think I we, we recorded that in, in this space, did we not? Yeah. I think we, had like, a, we were sitting right over here. I don't even know what I use for a microphone, but... I've come a long way. <laughs> <laughs> this is impressive, actually. Yeah. I'm looking at the uh, the orange suitcases of, oh my gosh. of technology. It's yeah. Really very impressive. But it's one of the lessons I learned from the show is that you don't you start where you can. Um, and that, that rule applies to all verticals in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to open a restaurant, you don't have to go get a $1 million loan. You can, open, you can start a website. Oh, I find <laughs> that the vast majority of restaurants that open on the multi-million dollar budgets don't succeed they the overhead is outrageous oh yeah it's just like overcapitalized is like the grassroots slow growth model works and it's because you usually have someone like a cook who's become a chef who's worked their way up in the industry they know it from the inside out but they don't have a ton of money do you know rachel miller no oh okay sorry keep going um and that trajectory is very sort of organic and uh reinforced you know, by the slow build yes. and the building of the team building that comes with it. Um, but when you open like with a huge budget and you have this investor who really doesn't know shit about the restaurant industry, um, that's doomed to fail. I mean, yes. almost every case of that that I know yes. um, outside of major cities where you can sustain something. Yeah. The, the, is, sorry, go ahead. No, it's just, uh, you know, the the story of the the slow growth model that you're referring to is... Absolutely the way to go, in my opinion. So Rachel Miller, I brought her name up because it, literally the, la- the last person I interviewed before this, um, based out of Lynn, Massachusetts, uh, Nightshade, is it Night? Wow, I'm drawing a Nightshade Noodle Bar. Mm-hmm. Um, she worked for Bondir? Bondir? Bondir. Bondir. Ke- yeah, yes, Jason. Jason Bond. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Ken Oranger and Jamie Bissonnette, all these great restaurateurs. Uh, when she decided to open a restaurant, her the first thing she did is was was create a brand and a website and started collecting emails mm-hmm. and then started doing pop-ups and, and private catering. Right. And the thing is start where you can and then just collect emails and build that list, build those relationships and let cash flow and people determine your growth. And it's going to take a long fucking time. Mm, it will. <laughs> but you know what? You you won't you won't fail. And if you want it bad enough, you'll make it happen. Um, but I agree 100%. So you, this at one point, there was a second restaurant right, right around 2015. There have actually been a couple since okay. we last spoke. So um, Just get super 30,000 feet yeah, without yeah. any detail and list them off. Okay. Jo- Joinery okay. was a restaurant. Um, we were approached by the investors in 
an existing restaurant in Newmarket in that space uh, that was hemorrhaging pretty badly. And uh, so Denise, my wife and partner, and I um, went basically went into that business, tried to do um, some forensics on it to figure out what the issue was. And once we were able to identify those uh, problems, then uh, we rebranded, created a new name, model, hired wisely, uh, a very talented chef uh, who's still a very good friend of mine. Brandon Vesey. Brandon Vesey. Recent and, guest on the show as well. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Brendan is a, you know, definitely one of the colleagues that I have in this industry who I have watched grow awesome, from like day one to where he is today and, and uh, just such a talented guy. Um, but anyway, so he was a big piece of joinery, I think, to being able to turn a failed business model around. Yeah. And uh, so that was like, we were able to walk away from that after about a year and a half and leave it in the hands of a chef who was running the whole operation pretty much. And um, so that felt good. And then... So when, when the joinery closed, you were no longer a part of it. Correct. Okay, got it. What was the other one? And the other one was Andine uh, Oyster and Wine Bar in Belfast, Maine, about three and a half hours away from Portsmouth. And that was a, uh, a move I don't regret because I learned a lot, but um, certainly a foolish move if you look at it on paper. <laughs> and that was because uh, it was a dream location, a beautiful um, sort of gothic building right in downtown Belfast, which is an incredibly charming part of Midcoast, Maine. It takes getting away from New, New England seacoast to realize how special New England seacoast is. Oh, yeah. Is. Yeah. And I was fully seduced uh, into opening up a restaurant in that location without really fully considering two factors. Um, one, I, I just didn't know shit about that community and about the clientele. Um you can try to do demographic research, you know, and think you have it figured out, but ultimately, you know, you never know until you're open. And I learned some, some hard lessons. Um, but then the other factor was I, I have followed a lot of chefs and have very good friends who are chefs who have been able to sort of, uh, you know, cookie cutter uh, a project and walk away from it and have it be self-sustaining in their absence. Um, not entirely in their absence, but you know, you mentioned Ken Oranger and, and Bissonette and some of these other uh, guys who I really admire who have been able to put their name on a project, um, presumably um, reap some benefits from that, whatever, whether they're financial or otherwise, um, and, and have that business succeed in the long run without their having to be there every day. So Andine um, was a very small restaurant, and I thought I was going to be able to put a sous chef in charge and essentially not have to be there. Um, I liked Belfast a lot and wanted to be there, and I was very fortunate to have someone who put me up on their uh, a bed in their garage for <laughs> like about a year. And uh, the restaurant didn't didn't quite make it two years, but um, and walking away from it was really, really difficult uh, because we did build community there like we've done here. Mm -hmm. And that community w who was there for us was very receptive and encouraging. Um, just, just there wasn't the critical mass. I just had to keep driving, you know, yeah. seven hours oh. twice a week. <laughs> and it was. Was there anything beyond Belfast? 
That was it in terms of other restaurants. Okay. Um, I've been an advisor or consultant in other projects. But yeah. I try to echo the mission statement as much as possible for the same reason you get on stage so people know why we're here and what we're doing. Mm. Inspire, empower, and transform. Um, definitely inspired by you. Um, we're, we're getting some lessons about communication and candor. That, candor that's the, the empowerment and the transformative um, part is one part personal transformation and one part uh, like collective transformation, communal cultural transformation. Uh, how have you transformed? What are the biggest lessons you've learned in the past seven years with mm. these new ventures? Uh, how are you a better restaurant tour today because of these these experiences? What are the biggest lessons you learned? Um, well, as a restaurateur, I, th- I thought you were asking on a more personal level. Um, because well, personally too, because we are you know, we are both we are human beings and we are yeah. professional beings. There's an organization called Food Solutions New England, um, and there are a few universities that fund this program. Um, And I have sort of been involved with them in various capacities over the course of Black Trumpet's lifespan. And um, I guess it was probably four years ago that I signed up for a program that they did which when I signed up for it, I'm not sure I was entirely prepared for what I was going to learn from it. And the lessons that I got out of it were about uh, equity and inclusion on the surface, but something much deeper in me um, started to look at the world around me in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, uh, with a different lens uh, that I can only describe as a social justice lens. So the transformation that I'm feeling right now as a restaurant owner has more to do, I think, with that personal uh, evolution or awakening that happened for me in trying to breathe social justice work into everything I do. And I can give you two examples of that. Um, One is a series that we did here at Black Trumpet Uh, right before the pandemic, called Women of the World. And the Women of the World series uh, brought a different woman every month from a cultural background, uh, usually pretty far away from here. Um, And she would cook, whether she was a professional chef, which there some of them were, um, or a home cook, or uh, someone who made prepared foods at farmer's market. Uh, Each of their cultures was being highlighted on a menu that they prepared with me and my kitchen staff. And it was so transformative and educational for us, but also for all of the guests who got to eat, you know, really authentic uh, Venezuelan food or Turkish food or Lebanese food made by someone who's usually like first generation American. Um, And so like that was, was one example of how that sort of evolved in black trumpet um, using that social justice lens. And uh, then, you know, another thing that happened was uh, Dave Vargas and I uh, were at a rally. Uh, I think it was probably after right after George Floyd's death. And uh, we were both very angry and we were feeling a sense of frustration because we're very active in our community, but we felt like this community needed an awakening, um, needed to sort of be jump-started into an awareness uh, that we have 
baked in racism here like so many other places. We're blind to it. Well, um, I mean, we, we felt that way on that yeah. day. So we, we determined right then and there that we were going to do something. And he's actually just walking into the building downstairs right oh, now. Oh, Dave's going to be here? I love, yeah, yeah, so we're going to have a meeting right after this interview uh, that's going to recap our BIPOC Fest event, which was the second annual one. Um, it's the third weekend in every September and has been at the Vita Cantina parking lot for the last two years. But we had over a thousand people attend this year. We had 30 different um, vendors, many of them restaurants, all of them uh, BIPOC owned. So uh, it's really a New England wide event now. And that was spawned out of a need that we both felt very strongly about uh, to bring the full fabric of our community into view rather than what we see every day on the streets of downtown Portsmouth, which is quite honestly pretty whitewashed. Yeah. Um, David Vargas episode 755. (laughs) If you want to check that out, love that guy. Um, You know, it's weird. Uh, I don't know about you, but being a white guy, I don't get together with a bunch of other white guys once a month and say, how can we really keep women and minorities down? You know, I don't think we do it intentionally. Racism Um, is not, often active and most people yeah. who are racist well, you, say they're not <laughs> exactly and, and um just growing up my I th- they don't know it, it's the whole premise of uh white fragility right is this idea of like racism is systematic it, you're in it it's the same way fish don't see the water and we don't notice the air <laughs> that's because we're surrounded by it. it's normal we're, we're acclimated to it yep. we don't know that there's anything wrong um however i sometimes wonder do you think that um, – I think it's there's so many good things happening in the world right now for people being trumpeted, pun intended. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I feel like social media and other media outlets blow – I don't want to say blow it out of proportion. That's not the right word. But magnify a false reality of everybody who gets murdered is just black. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And that – is there a better balance of communicating that? Um, is there a false sense of reality where it, cause I feel like there's, there should be people vocalizing equality, but at the same time, I think there's a level of rage that's associated with it. Mm. That has gone too far. Is that unfair to say? I mean, sometimes it takes rage to correct a wrong and it took rage to create this country. Mm-hmm. Um, taking that from the white person's perspective when I say create this country, cause it was already here. Um, yeah. but, um, what we think of as America today, you know, was an act of enragement yeah. that led to revolution. And yeah. I believe that I, I don't condone violence. I just believe that there's an element of enragement that has to be, unfortunately, that has to be the catalysts for change. Yeah. Um, Sometimes I feel like you've heard the the expression of people of the feather tend to flock together, right? Mm. And I think I I sometimes wonder, are we ever going to get away from this because of the the sheer numbers that are in the favor of white people? Because we look at data and we say there's so many more white male business owners. There's so many more like white this or that. I'm like 55% of white people making up the general population. Are we ever going to achieve quote unquote equality. miscegenation or equality. yeah so like i mean I, I the reason why i'm saying this i agree with 100 percent of everything you're saying that there's definitely racism and it's omnipresent 
I think the the percentage of it out there is exaggerated. I think it's, I I mean, it's, it varies regionally too. Yeah. We see it. We don't see it maybe as much here, but I I like your observation about the air around us. You know, we just accept it. Yeah. And I, I think stirring the pot is the right thing to do just to sort of check ourselves and, you know, ask ourselves those hard questions about, you know, are we silently marginalizing someone in a certain behavior every day? Um, I know that most white folks have a story to tell about something that they've done once in their life that they remember, which was a trigger to remind themselves later in life um, not to do that anymore, you know? Yeah. Um, we all have examples of that for sure. And I don't know. I, you know, We don't have to talk about this forever. I just believe we had to rip off that Band-Aid and we had to like have the noise a little bit of exposure, gets, you know, a little gets bit fixed, of bleeding. Right? Yeah, like, it, I think it's important to make noise because if you don't make noise... That's things won't get fixed. Right. Uh, is it the squeaky wheel gets the oil? Is the, is the expression or something like that? Yeah, you've got some good idioms. Yeah, but it's it's important to make the noise. But I think what's important is to realize. I think sometimes we can get a false perception, and I don't want to say racism isn't a thing because it's absolutely a thing. But there's a false perception. There's a lot of good fucking happening. There's a lot of good stuff happening. In the world. And I love to <laughs> like. It's yeah, not I, all bad. I really it's not, want to focus like, on that. Yeah. as much as I can. Um, We've come a long way in the past ten years, let alone fifty years. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we have a long way to go too. But yes. I also, uh, I really appreciate that I live in a community where people are receptive to reminders that we're not perfect and that. There's more that we can do. There's always more. Yeah. Awesome stuff. I've loved this conversation. I want to respect your time, Dave. I think I might have just heard somebody laughing downstairs. Dave might have just got here. Um, is there anything that did not come out of today's conversation that you want to make sure comes out? Um, yeah, there's a few things. I actually I brought a list of things that I wanted to touch on, and I'm not going to get to all of them. Um, I'm always happy the, to come back. Okay. <laughs> over the last couple of years, uh, I've worked with an organization called Gather, and uh, this was born of the early pandemic when um, we got some PPP money, and we had to find ways to use it, but we were closed. Like, we couldn't open our restaurant. Um, And so for those few months that we couldn't be open, we had money that we essentially had to use, and if I didn't pay my staff, they were going to collect their checks and sit on a couch watch TV, play video games, and get fat. Um, But none of my staff really wanted that. They wanted to keep working, which was really extraordinary. Um, So there was, again, a lot of communication and a lot of candor. And as these ideas popped into my head, I would share it with them, and they would sign on. And it was pretty amazing to me that I had that kind of um, group of people that was motivated in this crazy, unprecedented time to do the work for my business that they loved and they didn't want to stop that. They didn't want to just collect a check and do nothing. So one of the things we did was to team up with gather and uh, make lots of meals out of my kitchen here. And then ultimately um, the owners of the Atlantic grill, the Labris uh, were good enough to let me use their banquet kitchen. Ben Hasty's over there now. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Yeah. Good friend of mine. Yeah. I love Ben. Um, so anyway, uh, we were able, able to use that kitchen to produce hundreds of meals every week uh, for the food insecure. 
So again, social justice uh, is not just talking about race. It's not just talking about uh, women's rights in our industry. It's also recognizing that I'm of I'm in the food service industry, and there are a lot of people out there in this community who are food insecure, just don't have access. Yes. Um, so I just wanted to, to drop that um, reference to Gather, knowing that they are one of the coolest yes. organizations in our country in terms of the a number of meals that they're able to generate every week, every day for uh, the food insecure. Um, I just want to put a plug in. I know you have a list to get through. Just pop, just literally dropped an episode today uh, with a food bank. Uh, we interviewed the, the uh, director of operations, I believe is her title, of Next Table, or sorry, Extra Table in Mississippi, the most food malnourished state in the country right and it's a very great episode if you want mm. if you want to create something similar to gather or extra table listen to that episode sorry to interrupt no that's cool um and and like you said there's so much good work going on all around the country um very inspiring stuff and so to, to bring it around to to my list um the other project that i'm working on currently and we actually have, have another meeting uh tomorrow is uh trying to build a culinary program because those who are listening may, if you're in this region, may remember Macintosh College, which was a culinary school, for Cordon Bleu mm-hmm. um, culinary school in Dover that was around for many years. A lot of chefs that you've interviewed have probably come through that program. And uh, when they closed several years ago, it left a vacancy because um, it also coincided with the closure of a culinary program at UNH. Um, So, uh, you know, out of those ashes, we are now in a situation where we have this horrible uh, lack of staffing. And for people in the, in the kitchen in particular, we just don't have those next generations coming up um, to intern or um, to graduate from a culinary program and work directly in our kitchens. So, uh, so I was at some point, uh, in the last year, sort of scratching my head about this, thinking, are we doomed? Like, how are we going to make restaurants and kitchens in particular sexy again? How are we going to uh, take uh, like the next wave of students who are wondering what, they, what their focus in life is going to be and sell them on the idea that restaurants are a great place to work? So uh, as I was formulating this idea, I caught wind of the fact that Jay McSherry um, was having a similar kind of realization. And then I ran into him and he was like, Hey, I want to start a culinary school, literally like out of, <laughs> instead so of hi, awesome. how are you? He goes, Hey, I want to start a culinary Very school. Jamie, I'm not going to do Jay my McSherry Jay voice. But, hey. <laughs> um, so I said, Jay, I've wanted to do the same thing. So it was only a matter of like a couple of weeks before we had the attention of Great Bay Community College, and uh, we are now very actively pursuing what I hope will be a fairly quick path to a culinary certificate program that will ultimately evolve into a bachelor's um, in culinary art that will fuel our staffing needs. I would love to get involved. If, if I don't want to insert myself into it, but if I can be of service, I have no way, doubt please. that there will be ways that you can yes, help. Yes, please. So. In uh, Jay McSherry episode 874, <laughs> if you want to check out that voice, and he was another great uh, person in this, this community, great leader. You got the, Ben Hasty on that list, of too? Of course. All right. I, I, what, I should, what episode is he? Let me check it out. It was early. <laughs> I want to say it was episode seven or something like nice. that. Nice. Um, yeah, he's one of the, um, one of the OGs. 
So before we say goodbye, and while I look up Ben Hasey's episode, um, who do you respect and admire right now in the industry? Um, it's going to be hard for you to call somebody out in the New Hampshire Seacoast that I haven't already gotten on the show. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> well, there are a lot of people that, that I respect in this community. I mean, obviously, you can look at the work of Jose Andres in the last uh, year and a half and, well, his entire career. Um, but I had the, the when I started in this industry as a cook, I was living in Washington, D.C., and I would eat in his first restaurant in D.C., um, it was actually like a half a block from where I lived. And so he fueled a lot of my, like, uh, creative juices um, as a chef, but also the work that he's done over the years uh, making change socially, um, you know, to feed people is so inspiring to me. So he's, like, number one on my list, probably. You got his number? (laughs) (laughs) He would talk to you, I bet. I think he would. Um, He's on my list, and I absolutely – he's in Philadelphia, right? Uh, I don't know where he's full. I thought he was still in D.C. That's right, um, D.C. But well, they're close. Yeah. Um, so in this community, you know, I can give you a laundry list of people I respect. And they, you know, we, we all go pretty far back together. But, you know, I don't know who's been on your show already or if that's – are you fishing for someone who hasn't been? Is that – I mean, I'm always – you know, here's the thing. What I've realized, one of the biggest lessons I've realized, that it's not about how many people are in your network. It's about who the, – the, the quality of the connection, not the quantity. And that's why I'm back here because I asked myself, who are people I want to grow relationships and not just have a one off? Like, who do I like? And that, like, I'm willing to go back, you know, and I'm willing to feed old relationships back into the funnel to say, what's happened in the past seven years? Okay. I I now have a very clear answer for you. Um, And the really cool thing is, I think all three of the people I'm about to mention are in this building right now. Oh my God. Okay. So, number one on my list of people I respect um, and appreciate, actually, thank all the deities for every day is my chef de cuisine, Cameron Hines. Mm-hmm. Um, he would be an awesome interview. Um, but he's also, uh, the person who makes it possible for me to be sane in this job. So, um, so I respect him a lot. Um, the next two people that come to mind are Dave Vargas, who you've already interviewed, um, just for the work that he has been able to do in our community. Um, we do a lot of stuff together and, He's like a brother to me, you know, at this point. And then finally, Joe Kelly, Joanna Kelly, who is our assistant mayor, but also happens to be the owner of Cup of Joe. Yes. And she is a powerhouse. She is a person who every time I see her, like, I feel stronger and better for having known her. (laughs) Like, she's just an amazing, uplifting Hero. Joe has not been on the show yet. I go to Cup of Joe often to get work done. I would love to get her on the show. And we haven't mentioned Ben Hasty's episode number yet. If you head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 011 episode 11, you can listen to that episode. And you got to get going, my friend. You're, you're past due. I don't want to keep your company waiting any longer than they already have been waiting. But how can we connect with you if we've loved what you shared today? If we want to learn from you, if we want to come join your team, what's the best way to connect? Um, well, the best way to connect with me by email, um, is evan at blacktrumpetbistro.com. Um, and other than that, you can darken the door at Black Trump at any old time. It's, uh, it's almost always open. So, and I'm, I'm usually here. Beautiful. Uh, again, thank you so much, Chef Evan Mallet. There is no questioning, my man. You are unstoppable. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. Cheers. Cheers. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Chef 
Evan Mallet. And this was a true, uh, truly special episode for me. Chef Evan Mallet was my first ever interview. He made this podcast happen. He broke the ice. He was the name that I could throw out there when I first got started and say, Chef Evan Mallet did this podcast. You should do it too. And he really opened the doors for me. And not only that, I really do believe he helped me start with a bang and he injected a lot of integrity uh, and value into what I was trying to do with this podcast with making an example of people who are really trying to uh, do the right thing, uh, both treating people right and treating the food system right. And uh, he really helped raise the bar and set the standard for me. So personally, thank you very much, Chef Evan Mallet. And um, it's just awesome to continue the conversation. And I hope in another seven or eight years, we can continue to continue to have the conversation really great stuff so if you guys are enjoying this podcast and you want more like it we cannot do it without your support there's a ton of ways you can support the show you can subscribe to our podcast you can also subscribe to our youtube channel head over to youtube.com slash restaurant unstoppable and subscribe for a condensed version of this podcast with b-roll and on-site footage and behind the scenes we're really excited for growing that you can Come hang out in Restaurant Unstoppable Network. So this is where we are connecting our guests with each other to share knowledge and to bring the the best minds of the industry together. And also, we are connecting our listeners with our guests. And uh, this is really the vision for the space is uh, to, to pay it forward, to take the this generation's leaders and to put them in the same space with the next generation of leaders and say, let's do it right going forward. And uh, we can't do it without the the critical number. So get over there, join the network. And I can't wait to meet you when you do get over there. Um, and we're also going to be having weekly meetings where you can talk to a pro and maybe you can't afford a consultant, but we can crowdsource a ton of experts and give them whether it's a weekly spot or a monthly spot or a quarterly spot to make themselves available to answer your questions. That's the vision. And uh, I'm super excited for it. And then uh, we cannot wrap things up without saying thank you to Sam from SavinSam.com for the videography and Jared Parisi over at Sumatra Podcast for the audio editing and for the copy. Cannot do it without my team. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.